Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Friday, August 26th, 2016 from Slate. It's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. And we here at The Gist are here to help Maine Governor Paul LePage. We are here to advance his agenda. He wants to get the word out, and we're going to make that happen. I want you to record this and make it public because I am after you. What Mr. LePage wanted known was that he has taken umbrage at having his sensitivity called into question. He is not a racist. Now, when it comes to issues of sexual identity, one assumes the governor is less vehement. I want to talk to you. You want, I want you to prove that I'm a racist. I've spent my life helping black people, and you little son of a bitch, socialist cocksucker... Now this, right now, this is the service that we offer. We're giving you full, unexpurgated LePage. Because when I heard this interview on an all-news TV station, they bleeped out parts. Some parts you got to expect they bleeped out. But listen to this sentence. I need you to, this freaking, I want you to record this and make it public because I am after you. Thank you. They bleeped out freaking or freaking or however they say it in Maine. And they put up the F with the asterisks, which led me to believe that it was a worse version of the F word. But now that I know that it's only frickin', I have a totally different take on LePage. I I believe there is a sense of proportionality to this man. He knows how to keep his worst instincts in check. And to credit him, he did not claim that this wasn't me, the governor, leaving this voicemail. He didn't say his account was hacked. Of course, it's kind of hard to do when you start the message off with this. And he also called reporters to his house later to clarify, to walk it back. Not really. He said, I wish it were 1825. We would have a duel. I would not put my gun in the air. I guarantee you I would not be Hamilton. Now, Hamilton died in 1804. But good point. Good point for history. Good point from what's his name? Governor Paula Page. His name is Governor Paula Page. And he's seething with incandescent rage, the 74th governor of Maine. But just you wait. In the spiel, I'm going on vacation for a week and I'll be cleaning out the fridge beforehand, possibly singing more from Hamilton. But first, Chris Melanthi is here counting down the hits, the hits that happened a long time ago in 1991, as a matter of fact. I'm here to tell you about one of the most attractive automobiles you're ever going to lay your eyes on. 
And it's not just how good it looks. It's everything that can do. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with thoroughly modern design. The exterior, which won me over, is reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing. The interior is built with integrity using the most robust of materials. The Defender capability is legendary, whether you're facing off-road challenges or harsh weather conditions. The Defender 110 lets you go further and do more. Cargo capacity means you got room for your gear. To drive the Defender is to do what you do via your intellect, via your passions in life. It is to explore with greater confidence. Ready for a wide range of adventures? The Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, the Defender 130 that seats up to eight. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. Come on, swing. The year was 1991. I had just arrived at college, and I wasn't listening to anything on the pop charts. Although there was grunge, but those didn't hit number one. We're talking about the songs that hit number one on the Billboard list. And actually, in this episode, with guest Chris Malamphy, who comes on and we talk about the number one songs, we're going to veer onto another list. Chris writes the Why Is That Song number one column for Slate. Hello, Chris. Hey, Mike. How are you? I'm well. 1991, a lot of dance music. I was not that great of a dancer. Uh, So that would account for your uh, disinterest in most of what was topping the chart at this time? I think so. I think, you know, Unbelievable by uh, what? EMF. EMF. That sort of made its way into my consciousness. Gonna Make You Sweat by CNC Music Factory, one of the great songs ever, I would say. That also made its way. Is that near the top of the Mike Hit Parade? I think so, yeah. It really gets you going. But a lot of the other stuff. Coming Out of the Dark by Gloria Estefan. One More Try by Timmy T. All right. Well, we can we can break all of these down for you. I mean, 1991. I like the way The Kissing Game by High Five. <laughs> what the hell is that? Uh, it's a Teddy Riley produced R&B song, and it's actually pretty catchy. Okay. But, okay. but, but well, let's, let's talk about 1991, because yeah. you're right to point out what I would call bifurcation of the charts at this time. 1991, it's 25 years ago right now. When people talk about the radio of the 90s, they usually, in the industry, talk about um, narrow casting. You start to see radio stations really honing in on a very specific demographic. So you'd have pop stations that were playing records that a modern rock station absolutely wouldn't touch. Modern rock is in its own world. Hip-hop stations are in their own world. Rap is becoming a bigger force on the charts, and that's causing some top 40 stations to make a decision. Do we go more adult contemporary, or do we go more toward hip-hop and go for a younger crowd? So the charts of 1991 are kind of all over the place. They are eclectic, very poppy, and some of the, the big songs that we think of as 1991 records are not even top topping the chart at the time. Uh, you mentioned Gonna Make You Sweat, Everybody Dance Now by CNC Music Factory yes. featuring Freedom Williams. The C and the C in CNC Music Factory were a pair of producers and dance mixers named Robert Clevillas and David Cole. They had been uh, in the house music scene for quite some time. House music was really reaching a, a new peak at the turn of the 90s. And From what I understand, they were playing it all night long. They were indeed Say playing what? it all night long. Um, so gonna, gonna Make You Sweat actually became something of a controversial record, mostly for its hook. The hook, Everybody Dance Now, Mm -hmm. I'm not going to uh, hurt everybody's ears by trying to imitate the sound of Everybody Dance Now, was sung by a uh, vocalist who had been with the Weather Girls named Martha Wash. 
Martha Wash had an incredibly powerful voice, but she was perceived as not videogenic. So in the music video for Gonna Make You Sweat, uh, her uh, vocals are lip synced by a model named Zelma Davis. Very uh, videogenic. Uh, Martha Wash was not credited on the record, and she was given a very paltry fee. And she later successfully sued CNC Music Factory and their label uh, for both credit and a uh, much higher royalty rate on the record, which, let's face it, really hinges on that everybody dance. Now. It really treated her just like a, a cog in the factory. When you get, they were telling, they weren't being dishonest with how they viewed their workers. Exactly. Yeah. There are even cogs on the cover of the album, so they, she should have known what was about to <laughs> there happen. There are cogs. There are cogs. She was a cog in the machine. Uh, so some of these songs, especially by the big artists, we we all know: uh, Madonna, "Justify My Love," Prince, this time with the new power generation, Cream. Mariah Carey has a couple hits, but tell me about a couple of these bands. I think I may have forgotten. Who is this Timmy T character who charts with one more try? Timmy T, what's most interesting about Timmy T is that he is a... Uh an independent artist on a tiny label called Quality. And uh, One More Try, not to be confused with the George Michael number one hit from 1988, also called One More Try, is a uh, modest little ballad that began picking up radio stations across the country and never got picked up by a major label. So it managed to get all the way to number one on the tiny Quality label. One more try There are several sort of small, small-sounding mid-tempo ballads. It was a good year for for R and B balladry, 1991. What's another one of those? I would say the Kissing Game by Hi Five. I, I like the way the Kissing Game. Probably the best of these records. It's actually by Teddy Riley of the band Guy, also one of the progenitors of the New Jack Swing sound. You can think of I Like the Way the Kissing Game by High Five as sort of New Jack Swing dialed down just a couple of notches. It's halfway between a ballad and a New Jack Swing song. Uh, extreme more than words shows up. Man, people love to hate on Extreme. They kind of do. What's interesting about Extreme is by 1991, the hair metal trend of the 80s has kind of gotten long in the tooth. There aren't that many of the the major hair metal bands scoring big hits anymore. Guns N' Roses are on a hiatus right now, you know, recording User Illusion, which is finally released toward the end of 1991. And Extreme uh, featured the duo of Gary Sharon, singer, and Nuno Betancourt, who was the hot, hot guitarist, the, the, the guy with the fleet fingers in the yeah. band. Yet... Their number one hit, More Than Words, is a Beatlesque ballad. It's very uh, strummy, sweet. It's it's really a lovely, well-constructed song and uh, completely unlike everything else on their album, which was titled Porno Graffiti. More than words is all you have to do to make it real than you would. Not emblematic of the the sound of Extreme. Uh, they followed this up with another top five hit called Wholehearted, which was also acoustic based. So they managed to score one more big hit uh, that mined this sound. But uh, by and large, they were known for much harder rocking tracks. Michael Bolton weaseled his way up there with When a Man Loves a Woman. Did the original? 
chart at yes. number one? Uh, the original was a number one hit Percy uh, by, Sledge. by Percy Sledge yeah. in 1966. So when a man loves a woman, uh, however, whatever you think of the Michael Bolton version. And, uh, well, I think America was just clamoring for a less soulful ver- version of the song. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, when a man loves a woman uh, joins uh, about a half dozen other songs that were number one both times. Uh, yeah. Some of the other examples include Go Away Little Girl by both Steve Lawrence and Donny Osmond, The Locomotion by both Little Eva and Grand Funk Railroad. Did Bananarama ever yes. do it? Yes. Venus? V- Venus by Bananarama was first a number one hit by The Shocking Blue. Uh, Lean On Me was number one both by Bill Withers and by Club Nouveau in the 80s. Uh, you Keep Me Hanging On was number one for The Supremes, and it was also number one for Kim Wilde in 1987. So yes, When a Man Loves a Woman is one of those rare hits that was so powerful, it went to number one twice. I think the song that was number one for the most consecutive weeks was that Brian Adams song from uh, the the almost now unwatchable Kevin Costner's uh, Robin Hood. And I once did a video for Slate where I pointed out that most Brian Adams videos have him playing electric guitars not plugged into anything. And I first noticed this during the video for this where they're in Sherwood Forest. They have amps, they have guitars, but there's no electricity source. It's not really a terribly hard-rocking song by Brian Adams. Uh, right. Brian Adams had already had a pretty darn successful 80s. What's most interesting about Brian Adams is I believe he has four number one hits, and all of them are in some way connected to a movie. His first number one hit in 1985 was Heaven, which was first featured in a now-forgotten Christopher Atkins movie called A Night in Heaven. Yeah. Um, his next one was is— he, Was he a stripper? A male stripper? Yes, a male yes, stripper movie. not forgotten by me. Well done. <laughs> um, it, later in the 90s, and it was mostly fueled by this Robin Hood uh, hit, he scores more hits from— a movie called Don Juan DeMarco, a song called Have You Ever Really Loved a Woman. Right. He scores a number one hit, a terrible one called All for Love, which was in The Three Musketeers. He Ooh. sings that one with Rod Stewart and Sting. That it's, is That movie basically is Robin Hood just with, you know, in France and with yeah, three exactly. guys. But, yeah, exactly. But the granddaddy of them all, the number one hit of 1991, seven weeks at number one in America, is Everything I Do, that's in parentheses, I Do It For You, co-written by Michael Kamen, the uh, composer of the theme music for the movie, and Robert John Mutt Lang, famed for everything from Def Leppard to Shania Twain. It's funny, this might be the only song with parentheses preceding the regular title, as opposed to the parentheses after the title. Yeah, that is pretty rare. parentheses for your love. I can think of a couple other examples, Uh. but it is rare that the parentheses come at the top. By the way, if you think it was a big hit in America, it spent 16 weeks at number one in the United Kingdom. That is still a record. This summer, Drake's... uh, one Dance spent 15 weeks at number one and very nearly beat the record, but Brian Adams still holds the record. That damn thing was number one in England for the better part of four or five months. Brian Adams, by the way, his good songs, his great songs, not the ones you mentioned that went to None number one. Right. Well, but like, I, I um, like Heaven, actually. I'll stump for Heaven's Heaven. good. Yeah, Heaven it's, is good. It's good the to rest... have that in the set, but Cuts Like a Knife and Run to You in sure. Summer of 69. The good ones, yeah. He's a pretty great artist, I think. No, no, he can He's... write a very sturdy yeah. song. It's just most of his number one hits, particularly the ones in the 90s, are from movies and they're schlock. Yeah. Then the so- a song I mentioned in the intro, EMF. Tell me what that stands for. Uh, that's a good question, Mike, because <laughs> they have made claims in various interviews that it stands for different things. Uh, uh, you know, when they're uh, on the radio and being polite, they claim that EMF stands for uh, Epson Mad Funkers. But um, on a B side, they made clear that what it probably stands for is Ecstasy Motherfuckers. Okay. Uh, that's fine. They should own that. 
Unbelievable is the name of the song. Right. And it's a and very... Is that, is that the only lyric in the song? Uh, no, sure. no. It, it actually has, it has quite a few oh, lyrics. Oh, right, yeah. As well as uh, a very prominent sample from one Andrew Dice Clay. In case you're ever wondering what that oh in the record is, that is a sample of Andrew Dice Clay saying, oh, what the fuck was that? Uh, they blur the fuck so you can't hear that part. That might be an early example of a song with a drop. You know, when they would play that in the club, people would yell, oh, along with it. Probably. Yeah. You're unbelievable. But what's interesting about, uh, you know, EMF's uh, Unbelievable is it's kind of the only number one hit for 1991 on the pop chart that was a fairly large hit on the uh, modern rock chart. 1991, when you think back of the hits of 91, you're probably more likely to think of songs that didn't top the Hot 100 but did chop top the modern rock chart. I'm thinking of songs like uh, Losing My Religion by R.E.M., which went oh, yeah. to number four on the pop chart. Their biggest pop hit went to number one on the modern rock chart. Or, of course, Smells Like Teen Spirit by Nirvana, uh, number one on the modern rock chart, a number six hit on the pop chart, which is fairly remarkable when you think about it for the time. Well, did, were they calibrated things differently. So as I said, I wasn't listening. I thought I wasn't listening to pop music, but of course that song couldn't be more ubiquitous. Were they not counting radio play like they do now? Because that song was never not playing somewhere, maybe just my world. Uh, it, it definitely was playing everywhere. What is interesting about 1991, since you bring up how the charts are tallied, is it's the uh, big bang year for Billboard because it's the year they made the switch to SoundScan, mm. the far more accurate system for tallying first the album chart and then by the end of the year, the Hot 100. In November of uh, 1991, the Hot 100 is now tallied using actual counts of radio plays, not just radio playlists. And it's tallied using actual piece count sales in re, uh, retail stores of singles that are sold at the counter. So the charts got a lot more accurate after 1991. And some of what you're seeing reflected on the chart accounts for the kinds of records you see topping the chart. Yeah. Interestingly, the first record that goes to number one under the uh, new Hot 100 system is Set Adrift on Memory Bliss by PM Dawn. Uh, Prince B just died a couple of months ago. May he rest in peace. That's a song, uh, a rap song, a very gentle rap song based around a sample of Spandau Ballet's True from the 1980s. Uh, so kind of a, a hybrid of uh, an alternative sound and uh, peak hip-hop. As I'm looking at the 91 Modern Rock chart, by the way, Smells Like Teen Spirit was sandwiched between two huge U2 songs, The Fly and Mysterious Ways, and it only charted for one week. But I would recommend people check out the Modern Rock chart and compare it side by side to the pop chart. I don't know, maybe it's just me. It seems like the Modern Rock chart, as you say, has a little more staying power. You see some very memorable number ones on the modern rock chart. You also see some very memorable number ones on the rap songs chart. So everything from rap, that's what they called it then, the rap songs? There was a separate rap songs <laughs> chart separate from the R&B chart. Oh, uh, I love it, it still exists, by the way. Mm -hmm. um, but everything from Mama Said Knock You Out by oh. LL Cool J, OPP by Naughty by Nature, Mind Playing Tricks on Me by The Ghetto Boys, Check the Rhyme by A Tribe Called Quest. Back in the days on the Boulevard of Linden, we used to kick routines and the presence was fitting. It was I, the Viper, and me, the Abstract. The rhymes were so rumping that the brothers rolled the Zack. Hey, None of these were number one pop records. They were all number one records on the Rap Songs chart. So what you see in 1991 is basically a tale of multiple cities, different audiences gravitating toward different formats. Whereas on the Hot 100, you have songs like Mariah Carey's, you know, trifecta of number one hits this year, or, you know, Whitney Houston's All the Man That I Need, or Wilson Phillips. It's it's very different. And that 
Hold on, Wilson, Wilson Phillips. Lesser um, Wilson Phillips. Lesser Wilson Phillips. These are follow-up <laughs> Wilson Phillips tracks. Yes. Uh, uh, You're in Love was the number one hit in 1991. Chris Malamphy is off the charts. He writes the Why Is This Song number one column. Next time he's going to come in, we're going to talk about the 1943 Harlem hit parade, apparently. Thank you so much, Chris. Anytime, Mike. Drums, please. <laughs> Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. Now the spiel. So when you go away for vacation, you clean out the fridge, right? You want to get done with everything because all the milk's going to go bad, even if the milk's going to, you know, technically last till you get back from vacation. You clean out the fridge. So that's what I'm doing here. I'm going over all the old ideas, the half-baked ideas, the partly formed ideas, you know, like that meatloaf in the fridge. All right. Today on NPR, David Folkenflik tracked down the uh, 300 interviews that Hillary Clinton claims she has done in lieu of press conferences. He had a whole spread spreadsheet, went over all the interviews, and he found some interviews with reporters that maybe were a little less than uh, meet the press. Like this one. This is Mr. Chase. Who's Mr. Chase? Let me read a little from his Mix 92.3 bio. Mr. Chase moved to Detroit to do mornings with Coco and Foolish. Now he's on at middays, taking his Zodiac breakdowns to the airwaves. Coco and Foolish are no longer with Detroit's Mix 92.3, but Hillary Clinton is. Here was his first question for the Secretary of State. Is this Mr. Chase? Yes, it is. It's a pleasure to hear your voice. Oh, it's great talking to you. Thank you. Never before have we had a, a former first lady in the White House to this magnitude. Yeah, what kind of reactions did you get from your husband and like your colleagues, your entire family? And then about three minutes of policy questions in big quotes ensued and now this was mr chase's last question your birthday is october 26 right yes sir you're basically a water sign you have tendencies of libra you're great at getting people along and creating harmony but the only thing those around you have a hard time getting along but you get along with everyone i do i do and i i got a great team so the lesson here to me is if you want to get hillary to answer your questions you got to have the pipes Oh, Madam Secretary, you first called the Trans-Pacific Partnership the gold standard, but now say you won't support it. Can you tell me if you were at all concerned that the prestige and credibility of the United States is on the line if we renege on this multi-part agreement? And please answer, keeping in mind that you were a member of the administration that championed it and a Libra. All right, cleaning out the fridge, cleaning out the fridge. Speaking of what I was just speaking of, I was thinking of Hamilton and if Hamilton were done today with the political realities of the current moment, we might have this lyric. I am not giving away my shot. I am not giving away my shot. I've decided to give away my shot until the election to avoid the appearance of impropriety. 
It doesn't mean much. It doesn't add up to much. Just going through my head and I'm cleaning out the fridge. Speaking of cleaning out the fridge, I'm going to land on a food stuff. But here's how I want to get there. Leslie Jones has been pilloried, has been criticized. Disgusting, horrible things have happened to her because she decided to star in Ghostbusters, the remake. Now, Identity is a really important and driving force in human beings. And there's a certain category of person who never puts this in perspective. And it shows up in bad ways. It shows up in ugly nationalism. It shows up in backing terrible candidates for president. It shows up in doxing and putting up nude photos of Leslie Jones. But the identity in this case were people who really strongly identified with Ghostbusters as an ur text of their existence. Which is weird. I love Ghostbusters, but I never took it that way. I just wish that instead of focusing on Leslie Jones, they had listened to me. Maybe if I had done this, I had this idea a couple months ago. I saw a line in a news story. It struck me as a horrific thing. And if only the whole internet and the whole Ghostbuster fundamentalist world could have gotten a hold of it. I think we could have saved everyone a lot of heartache. And the line was this. In rolling out the movie, Ghostbusters will also be introducing Key Lime Slime Twinkies. Yes, Key Lime Slime Twinkies. They actually did or perhaps do exist. The reviews of Key Lime Slime Twinkies are pretty much universal. They taste a lot like regular Twinkies, but the lime is terrible. I do taste like 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 artificial lime key lime flavor it's not like that authentic authentic uh key lime flavor it just tastes like that twinkie filling you know it's nowhere near banging man i'll give this like a three this one guy found the lime not that limey and another snack food vlogger of which there are hundreds i found out guy named kevin letterman agreed i don't think it tastes like lime maybe it's slime just like they said I don't know. I don't know if I like them. But the goodness of the Key Lime Slime Twinkies isn't the creamy goodness or lack thereof. It's that this could have been the thing that we all attacked. This could have been where all the Ghostbusters fundamentalists rallied around, gave bad reviews to Amazon. I mean, there were some reviews to Amazon that were hinting at this, like... I was able to purchase these at Kroger for $2.50 a box. I bought several boxes for a party, thinking they would be amazing and be key lime flavor. They taste exactly like run-of-the-mill Twinkies. Not a hint of lime, nothing. But I'm getting more at this one. A one-star review. Headline, tastes like a dirty dish sponge stuffed with rancid avocado. My eight-year-old asked if he had to finish it. Harold Ramis is vomiting in heaven. That's the kind of thing we needed to take the heat off poor Leslie Jones. I also found this weird on Amazon. Customers also bought, the first item was the Hostess White Fudge Marshmallow Twinkie Limited Edition Ghostbusters. That made sense. But the second one was an Annie Proulx short story collection about Wyoming. Can't figure that out. Okay, cleaning out the fridge, cleaning out the fridge. I did not know this rapper existed. You will tell I'm pretty hip-hop ignorant. I saw a guy named Nipsey Hussle was charting or was featured on some album that was on the charts. And I just love the name Nipsey Hussle, the pairing of current hip-hop slang with 70s African-American icons. And I've been trying to come up with a couple of others that could be in the naming tradition of Nipsey Hussle. I don't have many. If you have any, write to us. Red Foxy Brown, maybe. Uh, Fleek Wilson and Willie Tyler, the creator, and Lester. That's all I came up with. 
And lastly, we will end with an item in today's news. This was a headline from the Washington Post who called it Sympathy for the Devil. It's about Ann Coulter's new book, In Trump We Trust. Now, the Washington Post, their headline was Sympathy for the Devil or the Devil in Prada, but they put it this way. Ann Coulter is experiencing every nonfiction author's worst nightmare. Being compared to Ann Coulter? No, no, no. It's not that. Uh, Getting a $40,000 advance for a book that costs $80,000 to research because you're so scrupulous about your facts? No, no. The thing that's every nonfiction author, by the way, she's now a nonfiction author, Every nonfiction author's worst nightmare is being directly contradicted by events when usually all it takes is like a week and a half and a little critical thought to directly contradict Ann Coulter. So in Trump We Trust, and she's saying she no longer trusts Trump, so she is living the nightmare that she has been for us for so many years. I just want to read this passage that was uh, on Twitter about when Donald Trump mocked a New York Times, a disabled New York Times columnist. Here is the poor Ann Coulter who is living through a nightmare. Here's that passage. Trump denied knowing that Serge was disabled and demanded an apology, saying that anyone could see his imitation was of a flustered, frightened reporter, not a disabled person. It's true that Trump was not mimicking any mannerism that Serge has. He doesn't jerk around or flail his arms. He's not retarded. He sits calmly, but if you look at his wrists, you'll see that they're curved in. That's not the imitation Trump was doing. He was doing a standard retard, waving his arms and sounding stupid. Ah, I don't know what I said. Ah, I don't remember. He's going, ah, I don't remember. Maybe that's what I said. Poor Ann Coulter living her worst nightmare. Well, I'm off the fridges. If not clean, I think that box of Arm & Hammer baking soda will hold. I cannot tell you or disclose where I'm going on vacation, but I will say this. I found out today that its zip code is sequential and it's not Schenectady, New York. See you in a week. And that's it for today's show. Just producer Mary Wilson summers in Cambria. Just producer Chris Berube falls in sawdust. Steve Lichtai is executive producer of Slate Podcasts. Andy Bowers is chief content officer of the Panoply Network. But you might know those two guys better as Coco and Foolish in the Mornings. The gist, we started off on Detroit Urban Radio as the news guy for Mitzi and the Derp. And now we're here. Oomperu, Deperu, Duperu. And thanks for listening.